what is mindfulness? And what is awareness? And how do these two relate? On September 5th, we'll be embarking on a new Buddhist Geeks Life Retreat on the theme of mindful awareness. During the retreat, we'll engage in the practices of mindfulness, of noticing what you notice as you notice it, and the practices of awareness, of simply being with what is. We'll learn how to practice each to see their unique perspective, and we'll learn also how to merge our understanding of the two. If you'd like to join us for this retreat, there's still space open, and we'd love to have you there. You can find out more at BuddhistGeeks.com slash retreats. Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. Moving into another kind of connected area, um, let's talk a little bit about dreaming. Mm-hmm. So, so you're talking about this, this sort of movement of the self changing through these different states. What, one of the things you talk about is the hypnagogic state, um, mm-hmm. you know, this kind of liminal state between waking and dreaming, and then also right. the dream state. Could, could you bring us through um, you know, the, the change of self as it moves through these states? Right. So the hypnagogic state is the state where you're falling into sleep or, or it's the sleep onset state. So hypnagogic just is put together from the Greek words meaning leading into sleep. And it's a state in which, so for example, if you're going to sleep at night and you're lying in bed, your mind is, as it were, drifting into sleep and you may see a whole kind of play of images across your the screen of your visual awareness. You may hear sounds um, that aren't physically present in the room. Um, you may have thoughts that are in some ways kind of perplexing and jumbled up but seem to have a lot of meaning or, or symbolic value. All of these kinds of things characterize the hypnagogic state. Often in our culture, because, you know, we, we run around and lead such stressful lives and, you know, we, we crash, we, as we say, we crash when we go to sleep, we often fall through that state very quickly and it's not subjectively very apparent. But if you, you know, if you're camping, if you live in the country on a vacation or, or you're on a meditation retreat and you have a much more um, kind of encompassing relationship to your sleep, then the hypnagogic state really emerges as something that's, that's really distinctive about how you enter into sleep. And in terms of awareness and the sense of self, it's a very interesting state because it's a state in which the sense of self as a bodily self in the, the, the rich sensory environment starts to dissolve and you have an awareness of images, but you don't really have the sense as you do in a full-blown dream, of being in an alternative world or dream world. There's this kind of play across the screen of your, of your visual awareness of images, and you become very absorbed in the images, and you can even notice how they're highly um, susceptible to suggestion and intention, so you can kind of play with them. But if you focus too directly on them, the images fall apart, so you need to kind of keep them diffuse and peripheral. But there isn't a sense of... Um, you know, you may still have a sense of yourself lying in the bed, 
but also of, of being caught up in the play of images, but you don't feel as if you're in a dream world yet. So it's, it's a state that psychologists, particularly psychologists who've been influenced by Freudian psychoanalysis, talk about as one in which there's a dissolution of ego boundaries, that, that waking sense of self-world, subject-object, self-other, that dissolves and falls apart, you could say, in the hypnagogic state, so that there's just this kind of captivated, fascinated attention. It's a very interesting state from the perspective of attention because your attention is kind of pulled along in an absorbed way by these images. And I'd also say that this is a state that um, I think many people become familiar with through meditation. So if you go on a meditation retreat and you enter into the retreat from you know, your ordinary working life, at least in my own case, the first two days of, say, like a seven-day meditation retreat are really kind of days of just metabolic reset. And a lot of the time spent meditating from a, from a, a let's say, an objective psychology perspective, you're actually asleep a lot of the time. You're in this hypnagogic state sitting on the cushion and so all of these kind of hypnagogic phenomena can become very apparent in, in a meditation retreat. And then, you know, in my own case, like on day three, day four, that's sort of, you know, after you adjust to the retreat setting and your sleep rhythms have changed and your whole metabolic rhythm has changed, that kind of then um, isn't so paramount anymore and, and it recedes. So if you go on a meditation retreat and you're interested in the hypnagogic state, you know, the first two days are a great place to, to um, become familiar with it. Then in the case of dreaming, though, um, what happens is that so you're in the sleep onset hypnagogic state and then you, you, it's almost as if you drop out of that state, fall out of it into what seems like a kind of retrospective blackness and then you emerge into the dream state and the dream state if it's a full-blown dream is one that's characterized by the re-emergence of that sense of self other or self world in which so for example you may be you're in the dream world and you may have a strong sense of embodiment in the dream you have a dream body um it might not necessarily be the same as your waking dream body. It might be a partial version of that, or your dream body might be different in some way. Or you might see yourself from the outside as a character in the dream. But nonetheless, there's a strong self-world subject-object distinction that reemerges in the dream state in which you identify strongly with a content of your awareness as self. That's what's interesting about the dream state is that in one sense, it's just it's nothing other than a mental content, but you make a division within that mental content between what is self and what is other, and you no longer have the memory that you're actually sleeping in bed. You take the dream state to be, you know, who and and where you are, and then that shifts again if the dream becomes a lucid dream, right. particularly if it becomes a very strong lucid dream, where by strong I mean you have a the very vivid sense that you're dreaming. You're able to direct your attention to whatever happens as being a dream content. And in very strong lucid dreams, you may even have the waking you, you may have recollections of waking life, recollections of other lucid dreams you've had. So your sense of self expands in a way where you no longer identify just with the self in the dream, but you actually have a sense of yourself as dreamer. And that in a way is like becoming aware when you daydream or mind wander because there's this larger awareness or meta-awareness that is 
of the state as a dream state. So while you're meditating, for example, in the waking state and you daydream, at a certain point you realize, oh, I was daydreaming, and you have an awareness um, of, the, of the mental content as you know, daydream. And similarly in a lucid dream, but in a much more powerful way um, because of the peculiar features of, of the dream state and the lucid dream state, you have this sense of, oh, the whole state is a dream, and my awareness can encompass that as a dream. And my awareness is therefore different from the dream. It's, it's an awareness of the dream as a dream. So it's a dreaming awareness, not just an awareness um, as dreamed. Okay, cool. And, and you mentioned that there, that there are some neuroscience studies exploring this. Yeah, there are um, now a number of studies using different kinds of neuroimaging tools that look at what happens in the brain when people are lucid dreaming. And the way that they're able to do this is that one of the features of the rapid eye movement sleep state is that your eyes are darting about. And people realized early on in the study of rapid eye movement sleep that sometimes the eye movements correlate with what the person will say about the dream when they woke up. So the person will say, you know, I was watching a tennis match and seeing the ball go back and forth. And if you look at the eye tracing, you'll see, you know, that the eyes are moving back and forth. So lucid dream researchers take advantage of that and they say, well, when you become aware that you're dreaming, I want you to signal that you're dreaming by looking left and right a regular number of times, say, you know, look left and right four times. And then you can see that regular eye movement on the eye movement trace that's being recorded while the person is asleep. So the person is physiologically in a sleep state. They're in a rapid eye movement sleep state and you see this regular eye movement and then they um, also signal when they wake up. So those signals give you a window of time within which you can look at what's going on in the brain, either through um, functional magnetic resonancing imaging where someone's in a scanner or with um, EEG where you have surface electrodes and you're measuring electrical activity. And what you see is a, is a unique state that has some of the characteristics of um, the waking brain and some of the characteristics of the rapid eye movement sleeping brain. But there are unique signatures that involve both electrodynamical patterns and also regions and networks of the brain that are very much active when you're awake and when you're um, perceptually aware of your surroundings. So it really marks lucid dreaming as, or we might say lucid rapid eye movement sleep, as a particular um, state in which there is a certain pattern of physiological activity and a certain character to awareness, and we can establish some pretty precise correlations between the two now. And this is very much... You know, there's only like three or four studies that have been published like this, um, but it's there are a number of sleep labs that are interested in doing research on this. Um, some people are working with experienced practitioners of lucid dream yoga. So this is, especially in Tibetan Buddhism, there's a whole practice of dream yoga where you use lucid dreaming as a way to cultivate, um, well, we could, we could say as a way to cultivate mindfulness, that is mindfulness of what the mind is generating from moment to moment um, as a way of transforming negative into positive emotions because emotions are extremely powerful in dreams. So if you can learn to transform a negative emotion into a positive one in a dream state by being aware that it's a dream state or developing a kind of equanimity if it's something like a nightmare, um, these are very powerful meditative practices. And so some sleep labs are starting to work with experienced contemplatives both to look at how their sleep may be different 
overall, but also as providing a unique um, way of studying the the lucid dream state. Okay, fascinating. It, it's really cool to hear that that field is developing. And um, I remember reading, you know, Stephen LaBerge's work and thinking, mm-hmm. oh man, there's so much potential here. Yeah. So so really neat to hear how that's developing. And thanks for your descriptions also of the, of the lucid dreaming state itself. Um, go, going a bit further, you know, the kind of the last area that, that you get into uh, is around deep dreamless sleep. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that there's a sort of common assumption in the, in the clinical neuroscience community, which is that um, when one goes into deep dreamless sleep, uh, there, there is no consciousness. That right. the consciousness is what vanishes in that state. Right. Um, there's a whole host of ways that you question this. And, and I wondered if you could um, kind of share with us um, the basic questioning that you've been doing around this and posing um, you know, to, to the neuroscience community. Yeah, so this is one that that I find you know particularly interesting. Um, if you read neuroscientists today and also some philosophers, you'll often come across statements like um, consciousness is that which disappears in dreamless sleep and reappears in dreaming or waking. And the idea that they're working with is that, well, we can say in rough kind of operational terms what consciousness is by pointing to where it's not present and where it is present. And the assumption is that it's not present in in dreamless sleep. And this is a very um, strong kind of antecedent assumption to make for a whole host of reasons. It's particularly interesting in relationship to Indian philosophy and, and Indian Tibetan contemplative practices where there is said to be a state that is a state of subtle awareness that is not characterized by dream thoughts or dream images and that does occur in sleep and that it is said to be dreamless sleep because of the absence of dream images and dream thoughts and that you have a kind of um, memory trace of when you, when you wake up and that if you've trained your mind in meditation – you may be, particularly the kinds of sleep and dream yoga forms of meditation, you may be able to um, remember better and, and recuperate more, you could say, from the perspective of, of um, waking retrospection so, or waking memory. So what this opens up is a whole question about how, especially from a trained contemplative perspective, our current scientific conceptions of sleep are just much too coarse. You know, we, we talk about the hypnagogic state, dreaming, dreamless sleep. We talk about the various stages of stage one through four of sleep where the stages are defined in terms of electrophysiological rhythms. And the reason that scientists assume that dreamless sleep consciousness is absent is basically for two reasons. They, When you wake someone up from so-called physiologically defined deep sleep, so this is where the slow and very high amplitude delta rhythm is most Um, predominant in the EEG. So this is so-called stage three and stage four sleep. When you wake people up from that state, they usually aren't able to report very much. They're disoriented. They say, if you ask them, well, what are you aware of? They say, well, um, nothing, or maybe, you know, some kind of fragmentary thoughts. Sometimes you'll get dream reports, um, but not um, with the same frequency that you do when you wake them up from rapid eye movement sleep. So the assumption is is that it's a kind of oblivion or blackout state 
And then if you look at what's going on in the brain, the brain is very, very active in the deep sleep state, but it's not active in the kind of large-scale coordinated way that it's active when you're awake and perceiving or when you're having um, vivid, vivid dream experience, say in rapid eye movement sleep. So neuroscientists assume, well, the brain's different, the reports are different, so consciousness is absent. But from a methodological perspective of the study of consciousness, that's actually problematic because we don't have a well-worked-out neuroscience understanding of consciousness. We know that certain things are correlated with consciousness in the sense of what you're able to report when you're awake. That's one kind of consciousness that we can characterize. But the idea that that would be sufficient to characterize all forms of consciousness across the sleep-wake cycle is not really a legitimate extrapolation. And then secondly, the kinds of reports that people make in a sleep lab are not necessarily optimal for trying to characterize more subtle forms of awareness. So for example, if you're, if you're someone who practices uh, more contemplative modes of sleep, the idea of being asked, well, what were you thinking of wouldn't really be the right question because in certain states, thought in that sense of overt mental content, that really drops away and subsides. But nonetheless, there may be still very subtle phenomenal feelings or senses of awareness that may be present. So we need better questions in the sleep lab that, that, would, that would target those states. So what I do in Waking Dreaming Being in the chapter on Dream the Sleep is I try to draw from the meditative traditions of sleep yoga, the, um, the neuroscience of sleep, and the Indian philosophical debates about Dream the Sleep. This is another thing that's very interesting about Indian philosophy is there are debates over hundreds of years about whether dreamless sleep is a state in which consciousness is present or absent. So unlike contemporary Western philosophy of mind where it's just assumed, oh, it must be in a blackout state, the Indian philosophers really debated and analyzed this in relationship to consciousness in general and to the sense of self. So what I try to do in the book is I draw from all of these materials basically to open up again the question of the nature of consciousness in dreamless sleep, and to do so in a way that would actually be useful for what I would call a contemplative sleep science, a sleep science that works with contemplative practitioners and participants in, in the sleep lab in a way that, that would really be charting new, new territory in the science of consciousness and the science of sleep. Okay, thank you. That's very fascinating. It, it sort of reminds me when I, when I first um, moved up to Colorado uh, as an undergrad, and was uh, going to Naropa and also uh, studying and working with Ken Wilbur, who's a philosopher and meditator. He, he would often describe his own first-person experience of um, being in this sort of uh, per permanent, constant consciousness. Uh, he, he also referred to the Indian traditions of permanent Turiya, which is that for, sort of fourth state that, mm -hmm. that you're describing. And I, I remember kind of thinking, wow, what would that be like to be um, aware or, or, or conscious throughout all of these states, you know, in an unbroken way for, for, for years or decades. Mm -hmm. um, and I know folks, you know, that, that are much closer to me that, that I've have experienced that, you know, advanced meditators have experienced that for, um, you know, days, for instance. Um, he's the only person I met who, who claimed to experience it for decades. Um, but it seems like if, if people did have that capacity, um, that seems like it'd be really useful for, the, for this new emerging contemplative science of sleep to be able to study those folks. Right. Well, I, I think that's you know, a very interesting situation where we have people who give certain kinds of reports about the subjective impression of their experience. 
And then we have the cognitive science perspective that wants to really probe those reports um, to try to use them to guide research, also to, to test them, because we know from a cognitive science perspective that there, there can be big discrepancies between subjective reports and, um, right. and objectively measured phenomena. So this is, I mean, this is a wide open area. Um, one thing um, also that's, that's tricky here is that a concept like Turiya the fourth or witnessing awareness or witness consciousness um, these are very embedded in certain metaphysical phenomenological systems that are also strongly normative in the sense that they're meant to guide how you sleep and how you live your life. And coming from from the Indian context, especially also the Tibetan one. And so yep. it's it's actually a complicated procedure to relate these different systems that takes kind of multiple expertises in, you know, the contemplative practitioner, the anthropologist of sleep, the neuroscientist, the the scholar of, say, Buddhist or Hindu traditions. And I think um, it's, 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 I think it's likely that when we pursue this research, we'll actually find out things on both sides, the, the side of, let's call it first-person contemplative experience and the side of neuroscience that we may not have anticipated from, from the perspective of either side. And that's what makes you know, the work, I think, especially interesting um, from, from a kind of open investigative point of view. Maybe a closing question related to that, and one, one that I really uh, reflected a lot on lately. And that is, um, you, know, you talk about your own approach to um, the sort of metaphysical assumptions about the nature of reality you know what what is consciousness uh, what is reality and you know there there's seems to be at least two common approaches to this you know on the contemplative side um, not, not all contemplative traditions take this approach but it seems really common to think you know consciousness is primary it's fundamental materiality arises out of it sort of mm-hmm. um, and then the other approach is sort of the flip side you know it's the uh, the universe arose, you know, with this big bang and, mat- and the material sort of spewing from, from where I don't know, but um, you know, and, and everything that's arisen from there is is sort of uh, arising from the material uh, world as we understand it, and, and so it's fundamentally uh, an emergent property of materiality. So, y- you know, the approach that you seem to be taking is is that that it's really an open question. In some ways, it almost seems like you're holding a kind of middle way. Uh, you know, tension between the two. Mm-hmm. And this is why I say it's connected because, you know, it's like, w- what do these different ways of orienting toward reality, how do they shine a light on the other? Um, could, could you say a bit about, you know, those different sort of fundamental assumptions about reality and how, how holding them together uh, does something in terms of this ongoing investigation and exploration that you're up to? Yeah, so I think I think it is fair to say that what I'm trying to do is kind of hold to some kind of middle way. Um, so there's 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 a couple of things involved in that for me. So on the one hand, I think consciousness has a certain kind of primacy that we could call an existential primacy, um, an experiential primacy, and and we might also say an epistemological primacy. And what I mean by that is that. Anything that we investigate, that we discover through whatever means, but especially including science, always presupposes consciousness in the sense of 
the experience of the investigator, the experience of the scientist, the observations being recorded by a community of investigators, their agreement on methods of corroboration and validation. So the idea that we could somehow sort of step outside of consciousness and be somewhere else and see consciousness from the outside and you know measure it against something else that that really does not make any sense that that's a kind of i think incoherent way of thinking about consciousness consciousness is is in a sense where we start from and it's where we return to in any um investigative pursuit so that's that's the way that i talk about the primacy of consciousness now we have to be careful there because it doesn't follow from that that consciousness is primary in let's say a metaphysical or spiritualist or ontological sense where that would mean something like what there really is most fundamentally is consciousness and matter is a is a um, construction out of it. This would be a view that you would see in certain um, traditions of Indian philosophy going back to the Upanishads. Um, you would also see it in certain um, strands of Indian Buddhist philosophy. Of course, it's present in Western philosophy where it's called idealism, mm -hmm. the idea that you know consciousness is metaphysically primary. That seems to me to be an extrapolation um, that's not logically established, certainly by the experiential primacy of consciousness. And so for that reason, you'll see people, you know, they have to put forward a lot of kind of independent arguments to try, philosophical arguments to try to make consciousness primary in that more metaphysical sense. So that's a road I'm not willing to go down. Not because I want to dogmatically say that it's false, but because I say, I, I think it involves a kind of speculative extrapolation beyond what's really available to us given our kind of cognitive situation. Yeah. Now, at the same time, I think it doesn't work to say, as some people do, so for example, I've had this conversation with uh, my friend Owen Flanagan, who's a philosopher who's, you know, wrote the book Buddhism Natural, or the Bodhisattva's Brain, um, Buddhism Naturalized. He's very interested in cross-cultural philosophy and Buddhism. And, you know, he says to me, well, he says, look, Evan, you know, the inference to the best explanation based on everything science tells us, is that consciousness is physical. And my response to that is to say, well, it isn't really an inference to the best explanation because an inference to the best explanation means that you've ruled out all the other alternatives given the available evidence. And moreover, it implies that we have some finished understanding of what it means to be physical, which we certainly don't have because our present understanding of nature, of physics, of biology is subject to constant revision and innovation. So if we say something like consciousness is physical, if by physical we mean what today is meant by the physical from the standpoint of contemporary physics, well, that's most likely going to turn out to be false, actually, because you know, in 200 years, our understanding of what it is for something to be physical is probably very different. If we say, well, I just mean that consciousness is fundamentally emergent out of whatever you know, at the end of the day, physics tells us is real, then that in a way doesn't tell us anything because we have no idea what that is. That's a kind of empty statement. So again, my position is not to try to extrapolate beyond what's actually available to us. So I think, I suppose if you were to push me, what I would say would be, I think that in order to really understand the relationship between consciousness and let's call it nature, we would have to have a kind of deep conceptual epistemological revolution in our understanding of what it is for something to be nature or to be physical. And were that to happen in a way where we would no longer set these concepts of consciousness and matter 
or mind and matter in opposition to each other, you know, as we've as we've done for centuries, um, then it might be possible that there could be some some more deeper underlying unification in our knowledge. But short of that, what we have to hold on to is the kind of experiential epistemological primacy where it doesn't make sense to say, well, we could establish from some position outside of consciousness that consciousness is nothing but a brain process. That doesn't, that doesn't really make sense to me. Or some inference from that that consciousness is the fundamental reality um, or that it's a fundamental parallel reality uh, in a dualist sense. That would be a, you know, um, going beyond the limits of, of what's really knowable by us, I think. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.